Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor John Henry, and this is the podcast of Zion and St. James Lutheran Parish in Martin County, Minnesota. What you're about to hear comes from our Friday morning Bible class. Currently, we're working our way through some of the core topics of the Bible, like, for example, the Trinity, the sacraments, justification, heaven and hell, the end of time, those kinds of topics. Episodes will be recorded every Friday in Bible class, and they'll be posted as soon as humanly possible with God's help and with minimal editing. Enjoy. All right, so um, we have been looking at the way that God manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, We have been also uh, noting that in particular, um, God manifests himself in the Old Testament, that there is a, it's like, it's like it says in, like the Apostle John says, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word, no one has ever seen God at any time, but the Word of God has been making him known, um, or the only begotten of God has been making him known, and, um, and also we're, so we're seeing that in the Old Testament, how there is a way in which God is made known that is, um, as we've gone through Genesis and Exodus, we've seen that there is this uh, person who is the angel of the Lord, who is also uh, perhaps strangely for us, but, ob- but also very obviously in the Bible, identified as God himself. There is a way in which God appears, who and he appears as a man, but then is identified as God. And we've seen also um, the word of the Lord uh, who comes as a vision that is seen. Also, we've had a couple uh, throughout um, throughout Genesis, we had a couple of what we can call direct and maybe one or two indirect kind of prophecies of the coming incarnation and presence and death and resurrection of Jesus. So already Genesis 3.15, you know, the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And then at the end of Genesis, uh, when Jacob is blessing all of his sons, although certainly some of his sons probably didn't feel terribly blessed by what their father had to say. (laughs) Um, But in the blessing that is given in particular to Judah, uh, there's messianic overtones, there's discussion of a king who will come, and um, depending on how you translate some of those lines, uh, it has more or less divinity in it. Um, I'm, I prefer to think that it's, well, anyway, I, I'm, I prefer to think that uh, it's all about Jesus and maybe in like a, derivative sense a little bit about David. But anyway, um, so then we got through the Exodus and we saw that there's the angel of the Lord and there's also the glory cloud and the presence of God uh, that accompany Israel on the Exodus. We saw this scene by, by um, uh, by the Red Sea as they're about to cross the Red Sea. And this doesn't really, the way it's actually described in the Bible doesn't necessarily doesn't it doesn't if I remember right it doesn't actually come out in the movies about the Exodus all that much Um, that what happens is it says the angel of the Lord and the glory cloud go and behind and stand behind the people of Israel so that there's the voice that the voice that tells Moses what are you crying about just get going and then uh, there's the glory cloud and the angel of the Lord and um, in a little bit of the research that I've done, it seems pretty obvious that early Christians right away connected this scene 
with the baptism of Jesus, where you have the voice from heaven, uh, you have the Jesus in the Jordan River, and you have the angel, or the, sorry, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove does. And so there's a connection there. And we're going to see another connection, I think, if we can get through it today, uh, to, the, to the baptism of Jesus. Um, and then the last thing, just to, just to, as a reminder, in Exodus 33, and it is important that this all happens in the same chapter, it says uh, Moses would speak to God at certain times face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So it's very clear and uh, emphatic that God and Moses spoke face to face. And then about a dozen verses later, God says, no one can see my face. And uh, it seems like either you have a huge contradiction in that in one chapter and this is not a this is not wouldn't be a contradiction between let's say Genesis and the end of the Old Testament where you can say well things developed or a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament this is within one chapter of the Old Testament where God says where it says Moses spoke with God face to face and then also God says no one can see my face so you either have to say this is a contradiction or there is more than one person in God, which happens to be exactly what we say. Well, yes, sir? Was a human when he spoke to Moses and then, uh, yeah, you can never see him because he didn't show us spiritual because nobody's ever seen God's spiritual. He's not a, a human. He came down as a human probably talked to him. So that would be the difference between... Uh, yeah. And seeing him and not seeing him because you don't see him because he's not that human. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure it's a difference between God being human and not human. I mean, because God in a, in a form that is not human is seen. I mean, they can see the glory cloud, okay? They can see this character who is identified as the messenger of God or God's messenger, which is we, we translate angel of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that that is human exactly. Okay. Um, God, yeah. Yeah. But there is a, there is, so there is a person in, there is a person of God that no one has ever seen. And if you saw them, you would die. There is a person of God that people do see and interact with all the time, which is the way it is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I think that it's just the same, okay? It's not quite the same in the sense that we're talking about in the New Testament, this second person, this Son of God, is um, only is manifesting as a human being where you can't tell the difference between him and another human being, right? So, um, so we've gotten through the Exodus, okay? And now, and what I'm, what I'm kind of like about this is this is if we look at this, this is this is taking all of these very familiar Old Testament stories that we have, and it's saying Jesus has been, or the Son of God has been, a part of this story all along, okay? This is not the Son of God is not somebody who shows up in the New Testament. He has been the same son of God that we, you know, call beautiful savior is not different than the God who's there in the Old Testament. And the Bible actually wants to make this very obvious. And sometimes, you know, there is a, we, we reject kind of higher criticism of the Bible. <coughs> where people come along, you know, with their rationalism and try to pull the Bible apart. We reject that. Sometimes it, we accidentally learn to read the Bible from their perspective, though. Because from the higher critical perspective, okay, the Old Testament is 
the Old Testament is about one God, and then the New Testament is about God plus this person, Jesus, who is sort of semi-related to God somehow. And then later on in church history, centuries later, they decided Jesus was God and made up the teaching of the Trinity. That's the higher critical perspective, right? When we reject that, we say God's word is one and, it's, and God is one and it's always been this way from the beginning. When we reject that, as we rightly do, we um, need to make sure we're going the extra step and remembering that, oh, okay, so the Trinity, the God that people are interacting with in the Old Testament is the Holy Trinity and at the center of that interaction is the Son of God. And that's the way it's always been. Okay? So, in our story, we're through the Exodus. We're, uh, we're going to start today in Joshua. There's a, And we're going to see a pattern that's repeating that we've already... Uh, starting in Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 13. And there is a, a pattern that is we're going to see repeating. And that is, uh, one, one of the patterns is that there is this angel of the Lord that people talk about or that people interact with, and then the angel of the Lord acts like, acts like God and people act like he is God. That, we've seen that in Genesis, seen that in Exodus, that continues right into Joshua. So in Joshua chapter 5, um, uh, you know, what's happened is the people have begun the conquest of the promised land, as God said that they were going to uh, undertake. Moses has died. Moses did not get to enter the promised land, um, but the, the torch has been passed, so to speak, to Joshua as the leader of the people. And in Joshua chapter 5, they are... Um, they are getting ready to, you know, this is the right before the story of Jericho when the walls come tumbling down, okay? Um, uh, so it says, I'm going to start in verse 13. Um, this is the night before, or before. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before, before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Remember, when uh, uh, Balaam, the prophet, or the false prophet, the whole business when the donkey talked, okay, the donkey could see the angel of the Lord standing there with a drawn sword. So, and we also remember that God had said, as Israel was coming out of Egypt, he said to them, I'm going to send my angel before you and he will lead you and he will be the agent by which you conquer the land. So this angel of the Lord has been going with the people of Israel and people have seen it and also donkeys have seen it, him. And now here he is. Okay, so a man was standing before Joshua with his drawn sword in his hand and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you or for our adversaries? Which is a good question, right? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And of course, the answer is no. So, you know, not, not, a, not the answer you're looking for, right? Are you for us or for them? No. <laughs> I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And we do, it's helpful to remember. So in the liturgy, we say, Lord God of Sabaoth. Okay? And I think once a year we should remind ourselves that Sabaoth is not Sabbath. Okay? Sabaoth is, the word Sabaoth is a Hebrew word. It's plural. The oath is, makes it plural. Okay? And it means something like, we, a lot of times it gets translated hosts, 
Um, but <coughs> hosts isn't really a word that we use anymore. Hosts in the sense of like the armies. Uh, kind of a more dynamic equivalent translation would be battalions. Okay? So Lord God who sits among the heavenly battalions. Okay? And now, so that that's this angel of the Lord is saying, who is a man, um, who says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Okay, which means he must be more than just a man because human beings don't order angels around. Okay, so, and then uh, Joshua fell on his face on the, to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And Lord, there is not all capitalized because it's not, um, it's not Yahweh that is there. Uh, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So this is, okay, so there's a couple of things being, a bunch of things being tied together here, okay? First of all, the him holding the sword okay that brings in the picture of him being a spiritual being holding a sword brings in the picture that the donkey saw balaam's donkey saw he saw the angel of the lord standing there with a sword the commander of the lord's army i mean he's a spiritual being then and then um the telling joshua to remove his sandals because the place that he's standing as holy ground is exactly what the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, said in the burning bush. Okay? So this is like burning bush part two. Okay? Or a sort of a, re a recap of it. Okay? Uh, um, and it's actually told in a similar way. In the, when um, Moses... It says Moses was just sort of walking around and he saw this burning bush and he gets curious and he goes over. I'm going to go over and see what this is about. And as he gets close and as he gets closer, he he gets he comes to understand more deeply as he gets closer what's actually going on here. Same thing with Joshua. He sees a guy standing off in the distance holding a sword and, you know, as as you would if you're the commander of an army, you're going to go over and check this guy out and see who is this guy? Is he a spy from the enemy or is he a soldier who is lost? You know, one of our soldiers who just wandering around at night. So you go over and interrogate him. And then as it, and then you, he gets deeper and deeper knowledge of who this actually is to the point that he is understanding that he is standing now in the presence of the same presence that was there in the burning bush. Okay. Um, all right. So, so that means that in all of the conquests that then follow, the fall of Jericho and the conquest of the promised land and the whole story of Joshua, this angel of the Lord is going with the people and he is the agent by which all of the conquest happens, right? It was, you know, to put it bluntly, it's the Son of God who knocks down the walls of Jericho. Hmm? Okay. Um, so, however, there's bad news coming. Uh, we're going to get into the most bad news book of the Bible, and that is going to be uh, Judges. I mean, it's not really the most bad, but I mean, it's, it's a pretty... Judges chapter 2. So as you're going into the book of Judges, um, it's, the, it's the story of Israel's failures. I mean, it's just a litany of failures, okay? So the pattern, the pattern, the pattern that we saw in the wilderness wandering about how they really struggle to be faithful to what God has said and they're always being led away into the worship of false gods and, all, and everything that goes with that. That pattern is what the book of Judges is all about. It's kind of this downward spiral of Israel. Um, 
And of course, God continues to raise up, raise up these characters that are called judges. And we can think of Gideon and we can think of Samson and we can think of uh, Deborah and um, uh, in judges. And also the background of this is, again, God told them, I'm sending when they're coming out of Exodus. This is a generation and a half, two generations before when they're coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. He said, my angel is going with you. Don't test him. Don't, uh, you know, be faithful to him. Listen to him. Obey him. Otherwise, there's going to be trouble. Okay. That angel of the Lord, the son of God, has gone with the people all the way. And he has led them into the land and has begun their conquest of the land for them. However, they're unfaith- there's a problem now. So we're going to go into Judges chapter 2. It says, um, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So they're, they're engaged in disobedience. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Okay, so we've reached a moment in this relationship between God's people and this, and this divine presence that is going with them where he's had it. Okay, he said, and notice what he says. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the land that I swore to give to your fathers. That means, I mean, that means when, and this is perfectly consistent with what we've seen, but that swearing to give the land to your fathers goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the person who talks to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God. The person who leads them out of Egypt is God. So that this is not, this is not some, this is, this is Yahweh that they're interacting with here, okay? As the messenger of Yahweh, okay? Um, and he says, I'm, 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 I've had it with you. I'm going to just, you, wanna, you, want to, you want so bad to have relationships with the people who live here. You want so badly not to obey my voice and do what I say. Fine, do it. See how you like it, okay? And uh, of course, they get real sad about this, but you know, their repentance does not is not um, thorough and deep because they do exactly what he told them not to do, and that's the whole story of Judges. Okay, so we get into Judges chapter six. This is the this is the story of. Um, or the beginning of the story of one of the, one of the, one of the better, if not the best, of the judges that uh, that delivered the people of Israel. Uh, you know, the the cycle goes: the people reject God; they are oppressed and harassed by the nations around them that they have not driven out, and um, then they cry out to God, and God raises up for them a judge. The judge leads them to victory, delivers them from the hand of their enemies. That situation lasts for a short period of time until they get comfortable again, and then we're right back to where we started. Okay? Um, so in Judges chapter 6, I'm going to start. This is the call of Gideon to be a judge, the beginning of it, in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. I don't know how to pronounce that correctly. So, while his son Gideon, 
that's Joash's son Gideon, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Okay, the Midianites are oppressing that portion of God's people at that time. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you and will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Okay, so, so um, the angel of the Lord, it says he comes and sits under a tree and then he goes and finds Gideon and tells, and um, uh, Gideon is a little bit, he's like, well, how can we say God is with us when none of the cool stuff that happened before is happening now? Conveniently forgetting what was just said two chapters before, uh, I did all this wonderful, wonderful. I did all these wonderful things for you, and yet you have rejected me. So maybe that's why my presence is not with you in such a important, uh, such a special way. So then uh, Gideon needs some. Um, he needs some reassurance, you know, because this. Uh, he is the least of his father's house, and his clan is the smallest, the smallest clan, the weakest clan in the tribe of Manasseh, who is one of Joseph's sons. Okay, um, and so he needs, and he's being told to go and save Israel, and he needs some reassurance. So he says, "I'm gonna. I need you to show me a sign that it's really you, Lord, who are speaking with me." So continuing in verse 19, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. So this is kind of sounding like when God came to visit Abraham. Okay? And he came and he, when he was there, it was, there were three men and they sat under the tree and Abraham went and got all stressed out and he didn't do much of the work. He made Sarah and his servants do the work to make a nice meal for. But here Gideon is, you know, making it's got meat and it's got it's got uh, you got your protein and you got your carbs, which means it's a full meal. OK, people would not would not eat meat every day. Just. So we're pretty spoiled that we can have you can have two or even three patties on one burger as many times a day as you want. Okay, so uh, the, he's making a special meal. He put the meat in a basket, the broth he put in a pot. He put them under the terebinth tree and presented them. Presented them, and the angel of the of God said to him, "Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them." And he did so. The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. The angel then and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Okay, so what is this about? Why are we doing this? Why does he he brings him out this nice meal and he says, I want you to put it on the rock, put the cake and the meat on the rock pour the broth on top of it, and then he lights it on fire. Yeah, this is what, so Gideon needs reassurance that this is actually God who is speaking to him, okay? So Gideon makes a nice meal, and 
in order to demonstrate who he is, God takes it, the meal, and turns it into a, a sacrifice. Okay? So this rock becomes the altar. And it's, it's actually, the, I mean, the Israelites would offer, they would offer animal flesh on the altar. They would also offer wheat cakes on the altar too. I mean, this is part of the sacrificial system. And uh, it is one thing we is helpful to always keep in mind in the Old Testament is that the understanding is, is when you're burning something on the altar, you're not just burning it up. You are actually, um, this is how, this is how, I mean, the ancient pagans, this is how they thought the gods ate. They ate stuff because they're spiritual, so you have to turn this, the material food into spiritual food, which is smoke, so that then they can consume it spiritually, okay? And God kind of goes along with this understanding, basically. But it's also important to realize that when, the, our, when we're offering sacrifices in the Old Testament, the idea is that you are sharing a meal with God, okay? You cut the animal up, some parts of it God consumes in the fire, some parts of it you consume too, okay? So, um, so this is what happens is in order to show Gideon that this is not an ordin- that he is not an ordinary human being, because an ordinary human being would just take the meal and eat it, okay? But God will take it and sort of consume it in this divine way by burning it and having it offered as a sacrifice, okay? And then as soon as the sacrifice is over, the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he, this is verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abbey Ezrites. I think it's Abbey Ezrites, yes. Okay. Um, So then, once the angel of the Lord vanishes, then he starts hearing voices, you know, as one does. Okay. And God tells him, don't be afraid. The angel of the Lord is still with you. And um, God is with you. And you're not going to die because that's what you worry about when you see God, that you will now die because you've just seen him face to face. Okay. Um, So we've seen a couple of these scenes here, though, are replaying scenes that we've had from the past from Genesis. Okay. Um, And then this, I want to, there's one more, I want to go through. Let's look at Judges 13 then. So Judges 13 starts out. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 
There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So the Nazarites were, there was this um, custom and tradition in Israel of taking what is called a Nazarite vow, which meant... Um, and th these vows could either be taken for your whole life or they could be taken for a period of time, okay? And when you took this Nazarite vow, you abstained from certain things. You abstained from, and there was only men who did this, but you abstained from marital or extramarital relations, okay? You did not eat certain, you, you had a very simplistic diet, and you did not drink any alcoholic drink. <coughs> and what, hap what would happen would be is when you took this vow, on the day that you took it, you would shave your head, okay? And then you would not cut your hair for the whole time period that you were under this vow. So you might say, I'm taking this vow for three years because uh, there's just for whatever reason, okay? Um, so you would, you'd shave your head on the first day and then you wouldn't cut your hair for three years and it would just, and so this angel of the Lord is saying that Samson will be a Nazarite from birth. That is, he is already considered to have been put under this vow. So even while he is in his mother, she cannot eat any unclean food because she can't contaminate him by or herself by eating it she can't drink any strong drink and this is not you know nowadays we sort of know that it's healthier for a growing baby if the mother doesn't drink alcohol during pregnancy that's not what this is about this is about don't ingest any alcohol because the one who is in you is going to be set apart from all of those things from birth and of course Samson never, <laughs> you know, he breaks all of his vows as soon as he's old enough to do so. But, okay. So, um, then the woman came, verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay. Then Manoah, her husband, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, nor let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I command her, let her observe. Just a note there on anything that comes from the vine. They did not have grape juice. Because in order to make grape juice, you need to take the juice from grapes and you need to artificially stop the process of fermentation. So if you just take, if you squeeze grapes 
and you leave them for a while, it will start to turn into wine. There's no, in a very short amount of time. So there's no, there's no such thing as grape juice. Sorry to the people who say we should not drink alcoholic wine. Because there's, every time in the Bible when it talks about wine, it's talking about, or the fruit of the vine, it's talking about fermented fruit juice. Okay? Same thing happens, obviously, with apples, right? If you just leave apples, just raw apple juice, it will start to turn into, you know, yep. Okay, so Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, so that's why she can't, it's, he says, nothing that comes from the vine, okay? Just don't even, even if, it, even if it was squeezed that day, keep it away. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and pre- prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So, it's kind of getting close closer to Christmas. Okay, And on Christmas, there's that passage from Isaiah 9, and he shall be called... Right and wonderful counselor and that that's kind of the that comes from the king james translation that then goes into the handel's messiah and so we're very used to wonderful counselor and we're we're used to seeing wonderful as an adjective that modifies counselor okay Yeah, I mean it. It there's yeah. There's no. There's no. Yeah. Is that the way it's supposed to be? Or I'm I'm suggesting that that that's probably the way it's supposed to be. And there is a connection between that, the prophesied child in Isaiah, he shall be called wonderful, and there's a connection between that and this right here, okay? Because there is no punctuation in Hebrew, okay? So. Every time you put a comma in, it is an interpretation, okay? So, um, so it, so just, and it, you know, you can't really be dogmatic about that because it's, there's no punctuation in Hebrew and it is a little ambiguous, but I would say, look, let's just opt for making this as much about Jesus as it could possibly be because that seems to be what God wants to do with the Bible is to preach Christ to us. So let's see a connection here between the angel of the Lord who says, who calls himself wonderful and then our true messenger of God, the Savior who is called wonderful in Isaiah. Um, So Manoah took the young, and again, so there's a different, there's a thing here with this, um, eating, he says, I'm not going to eat your food, but instead prepare, you know, so there's a little bit of connection with what happened with Gideon. I'm not going to eat your food, make an offering to God. Okay. Um, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. So this is sort of a repeat of what happened with Gideon, that you have the identification of who he is take place during this sacrificial meal that's offered to God. Now just, is there any place in the New Testament where... So there's the meal and then the divine presence vanishes. So when, remember when the, the two men are walking from on the road to Emmaus and this figure comes up and starts walking with them and they don't recognize who it is, but of course it is the risen Jesus. 
and they walk and they get to Emmaus and they go and they have dinner. And then Jesus takes the bread and blesses the bread and breaks the bread and then he vanishes. And then they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And as soon as they recognize him, he's, he vanishes. Okay. So this is kind of a, this is a pattern that happens in the scriptures a number of times where he is, so God is recognized in the sort of the, the, the sacrificial meal. And then once he is recognized, he is no longer seen. Okay. So it said, the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Okay. So again, you see the angel of the Lord, you've seen God. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the father. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him at Machinadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Okay, so... Um, and then the story of Samson continues in which he does not keep even a single piece of his vows that he's supposed to keep. And, uh, yeah, Samson is, um, he, it's a popular Bible story because he's so much like a superhero and it's so dramatic, but he is not a good person, Samson. He is not someone that we should teach our kids to emulate, you know? I mean, he, there is kind of this anti-hero quality to the way he dies, but it's still, I mean, it's and disobedient and, you know, driven by his desires. And he, you know, he does not, even he doesn't, he just kills a lot of people just because he can and not really in obedience to God delivering the people from the Philistines. He just kind of does it. And, and so, yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't acknowledge really that his strength comes from God. He messes around with, Oh, my strength is in my hair, which is not really true. <laughs> it's, you know, um, okay. So he's kind of the anti anti judge anti-hero judge. Um, there seems to be a theme here that, I guess I don't understand it why it's drawn in the Jewish teachings. Everybody's going to die that sees God. Right, yeah. That's, and that, that goes back to, I mean, that goes back to, um, well, where's the first time that happens? One, you know, in Genesis, okay, there's the story of uh uh, Jacob's ladder or Jacob's stairway to heaven. And he says right there, he says, I have seen God face to face. No, this is a different one. This is when he wrestles with God. He says, I've seen God face to face and yet my life is uh, preserved. Okay. So there is, and, and in Exodus 33, which I talked about at the beginning here, um, Moses, when he asks to see God face to face, God says, no one can see my face and live. Okay. And yet, so, so there is this, there is this, um, over and over there. Yeah. 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 Oh, we just see God. We're going to die. Yeah. Well, it it is, it is, it is where it comes from is the, you know, and maybe we could use a little more of this, but like, you know, I mean, when we come into church, right, and we are preparing to hear words that come directly from the mouth of Jesus, as recorded in the scriptures, and to eat his body and drink his blood, we start off saying, we start off with confession and absolution, okay? Because it is a dangerous thing to come into God's presence, you know? Because, and the reason it's dangerous is because we bring our own sin and we bring 
the contamination that we've had in the, with the rest of sinful humanity and the broken, and we're bringing that all into God's presence. And that's where, you know, God and God's holiness and human sin do not mix well, right? And it's never, it, the problem always ends up being a problem for human beings, okay? Um, I mean, and this, this is something that happens, you know, this is, this is part of what's going on in all of the, the tabernacle and all of the, like how there has to be all of these grades of holiness, you know, that there's the holy of holies and the holy place, and then there's the, and then outside of that, there's the camp, and then there's the outside the camp, you know, that there's these grades of, and as you get closer and closer to where God is, more and more is expected of you in terms of holiness and separateness from the sinful world, right? Um, and uh, so there's, so in, there's kind of, but there is also this way in which God, especially in the person of the Son, does come into and does sort of meet humanity where broken, fallen humanity is at, okay? And comes into, so in all of these instances where you're seeing God come and it's like, is this a man? Is this an angel? Is this God? Well, of course, the answer is kind of yes. Um, you're seeing a, you're seeing part of the way that God interacts with the world is that he's not leaving the world in its sin, but is coming into the world. And, and yet still there is, you know, people know, people remember this, the things that happened. Uh, there, we didn't go into these stories, but in, you know, uh, with, the, with the tabernacle and the priests who screwed up, you know, the priests who apparently, the sons of Aaron, who apparently got drunk and went and offered strange fire to God, and they just got obliterated, you know. They know that, I mean, that's God's, that is sort of death by holiness. Like, you don't, you, 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 yeah. And, and, uh, and people are aware that that can happen. So people marvel at the fact that God has been gracious enough to manifest himself to them, and yet without, and, and to do so in such a way that his holiness is, hidden and kind of restrained so that this interaction can happen safely for human beings. And the ultimate example of that, of course, is Jesus, who is fully God, but comes fully in the, um, in the weakness of human flesh, not the sin of human flesh, but the, but the um, and is, and, you know, touches unclean people and eats with tax collectors and sinners and calls people to repentance, you know, so that's already, that pattern has already happened here. And people, I mean, people are a little mystified by it, okay, because they know what happens if you approach God in the wrong way. But this is God approaching us in his, in his grace. So Jesus, what, what, is, what is underneath this is Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, so he's like uh, in his, on the Holy, on Maundy Thursday night, okay, he's having this discussion with all of his disciples at the Last Supper that's recorded in the Gospel of John. And I think, I'm 90% sure it's Philip who says, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know who I am? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So, so, yeah, everything, everything that's about this seeing God or not seeing God that we're, that we're kind of going over here pertains to this, this side of death, right? You know, human beings in the flesh, okay? Um, when in... in there is an interesting thing that when we were in Revelation, where 
Remember when they see when John sees the divine throne at the beginning of Revelation, and he sees there's someone seated on the throne. Even there, whoever is seated on the throne is not, which would be the Father, is not described in detail. The one who's actually described in detail is the Lamb of God who sits on the same throne. Remember that? Perhaps suggesting that that even in heaven, the Son of God is the one who, through whom we know the Father. Okay? We don't... It's, it, it, it seems to be the case that it's always described this way in the Bible is that we know God through Jesus. We pray to God, the Father, and we can pray to him because we have known Jesus, okay? So that it's, it, it's, it's always through, through Jesus, in his spirit, his spirit within us, in his presence that we know the Father. And this is part of the way that when we have the, the this is part of the way we interact with the Trinity, so to speak, okay? We pray to God the Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and we pray empowered by his spirit, okay? Um, and I think, that it, I think that that's the way it is. I mean, I think that that's the way it is in heaven too. And I, I you know, I, I mean, we don't, wanna, we don't want to get in the, what heaven is like is we want to just stick with what the images that scripture gives us and then realize that the images that scripture gives us is expressing to us something that ultimately cannot kind of be expressed. Because heaven, you know, we're not in the body anymore. We don't have bodily faces, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that, the old man with the beard thing. That comes from Daniel. And Daniel sees... And that, it, that is an odd thing. That's a, that is a thing. I mean, and I mean, by odd, I mean, it's odd in the Bible that God the Father is depicted there in Daniel. But we'll talk about that when we get, when we get to it. Um, but, you know, one of, the, one of the things that does change for in the New Testament with the way people understand seeing God, okay, is that Christians understand that you can, if you are, if you are depicting Jesus, the human Jesus, that it, you know, you, it, it used to be you should not kind of draw any kind of picture that's God, okay? Uh, and in Islam, for example, like you can't even draw a picture of the Prophet Muhammad, okay? And if you look at like, this is, okay, so this is, but if you look at it like Islamic art, a lot of it is very, you know, they'll take Arabic letters and they'll kind of decorate them and then, you know, this is what... So Islamic art is very non-literal, right? They don't depict things that much. In Christianity, and you know, this is all over the place around all of our churches, there is this understanding that you, it's, you can depict Jesus. And in depicting Jesus, you have a picture of God, okay? It's like um, uh, Paul says to the Galatians, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? Meaning, perhaps already in Galatia, they're using something that would, we would recognize as like a cross or a crucifix. Um, perhaps. Um, but this, this becomes a, uh, a important thing in the New Testament is that 
in Jesus, God is really there, is, is like, he's, we've seen his glory. We've seen the glory of God in the man Jesus, okay? And it's not because we have captured God and put him in a box. It's because God has come down to us and has manifested himself to us, okay? So Christianity becomes much, much, much more comfortable with the use of pictures and images and then later on even statues in worship than Judaism was or than Islam is. And that was not something that the, that the Lutherans got rid of in the Reformation either, you know. Um, and, but it's not, it, it's because God has made himself known in Jesus. And you don't worship a statue, obviously, but because God is now seeable in Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The visual, the visual aspect of worship changes, okay? In, in the, um, the way the visual aspect of it worked in, um, in Judaism was that, okay, so you had the Ark of the Covenant, right? And we've all seen it from Indiana Jones, okay? Yep. And, and they actually did a pretty good job, you know. And above it, okay, are these two angels. And I'm going to just, this is going to be, the angels are kind of going like this. They're sort of kneeling down, and they sort of have their wings covering it, okay. And um, what this is depicting is that there is an invisible presence above it, okay. So you have pictures of angels, and then, or statues of angels, actually. And then in the tabernacle around it, you also have, there's angels that are, because the ta original tabernacle is made of cloth. It's not made of wood or stone. You have angels woven into the fabric so that it can be, so you have angels everywhere. And then there is, all these angels are sort of surrounding and uh, this invisible presence that is above the, above the, the tabernacle, okay? Or above the, the ark, yeah, in the tabernacle, okay? And this is that, you know, they understood. This is the, the and, and this is, and in Christian art, what happens is this invisible presence starts to be depicted as Jesus because this invisible unseeable presence of God has become, the glory has become seeable. I mean, in, the, in 1 John, John talks about that we have seen and handled the glory of God. And in, in John chapter 1, in the Gospel of John, he says, um, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. The word becomes flesh. So now visible means can depict him. But yes, of course. I mean, it's it you you if you're seeing a statue, you're not you're seeing an image. You're not yet seeing God face to face. So that's you know the there's actually a very very old, I think I've said this before. There's this very ancient Christian church in Ethiopia and Africa, okay? That's very, I mean, it's, they have, and there's this monastery where they claim the Ark of the Covenant is inside of it. And they claim that there's this connection between the Queen of Sheba who comes to visit Solomon in the Bible, that that queen is actually from Ethiopia, because no one, it's very hard to nail down exactly where Sheba is. It's somewhere to the south of Israel. And there's all these legends about either they, the ark got stolen or there were people who knew that the Babylonians were coming. So they went and took the ark out of the temple to keep it safe in Ethiopia. 
well, the Babylonians destroyed the temple. I, all of that is kind of, I mean, no one is allowed to go in there and actually see it, so no one knows. And, and I don't, I mean, it doesn't matter because the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the temple is the body of Christ, right? And we have it all, so we're not missing anything. And if you found the Ark of the Covenant, it would just be a box at this point. And you could open it and it probably would not melt your face. Because the holiness, all the holiness of that is now been transferred into Jesus, where it came from anyway. And that holiness is then given to us in a safe way in the word of God and in the sacraments of the church, right? So, okay. I wanted to get into the, I wanted to get into Eli, uh, Samuel and David and the life of the Trinity there, but we'll have to save that for next time. Thank you for listening. Join us live and in person Friday mornings at 8 a.m. at St. James Lutheran Church for Bible study. Join us for divine service on Sunday mornings, 8.30 a.m. at St. James Lutheran in Northrop, or at Zion Lutheran at 10 a.m. in rural Fairmont. Check out our website at sjlnorthrop.com. Find us on Facebook at St. James Lutheran Northrop. Thanks again. God's peace.